the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. Hi, Kristen. It's so nice to meet you. Hi, it's wonderful to see you as well. Yeah, so I am really, really excited to be talking to you about Mary Boleyn and different rumors that surrounded her during her time at the court of Henry VIII. But before we get to that time, we need to go back in time a little bit and talk about Mary's earlier life. So we know that a teenaged Mary Boleyn served Henry VIII's sister, Mary Tudor, in France in her time as the French queen in the year 1514. So that my first question for you is, is there any truth to the rumor that the French queen's son-in-law and Henry VIII's great rival, King Francis I, called Mary Boleyn his quote-unquote English mare. So what can you tell us about this relationship between Francis and Mary, and did this quote actually happen? So, uh, well, (laughs) (laughs) this is a long tale, but that quote is from a letter written by Rodolfo Pio, who is the Bishop of Faenza in 1536. Oh, okay. So 1536, this is the same year that Anne Boleyn is executed. Mm -hmm. You know, this is way after Mary was actually at the court. And um, in that letter, he says that that the king said that she was a great prostitute and infamous above all. But a careful reading of this letter will lead most people to understand that Rodolfo Pio was referring to Anne Boleyn. Oh, okay. That's a plot twist. So letter says that Mary was with her sister Anne during a miscarriage of a son at Henry's court, right, mm-hmm. later in 1534. But the letter has so many falsehoods in it that it's hard to lend credence to one phrase when we know that so many other facts in it are wrong. Mm -hmm. So you sort of, you know, when you're judging a source, you look at the author's perspective, you look at, uh, you know, is there other things in the document that make it um, relevant and reliable? Can you tease out pieces that work? So unfortunately in this letter, (laughs) there's other falsehoods. Like he says that Anne was pretending to be with child, but we know she was with child. Mm-hmm. Um, there are multiple reports of Anne having miscarried in January of that year. And so, so there's that piece of it. And then the other thing is that Nicholas Sander, 50 years later in 1585, um, <laughs> has this, makes an allegation in something called the rise and growth of the English schism. So this is about uh, the split of England from the Roman Catholic church Um, saying the English mayor, Mm -hmm. you know, when that, that phrase, Oh, well, Francis the first said that Mary Boleyn was his English mayor and he rode her and all the sexual innuendo that underpins Mm -hmm. that. So Again, in this particular letter or this particular book, sorry, uh, some historians believe that he's actually referring again to Anne. So because Nicholas Sanders was a staunch Catholic and he was trying to blacken Queen Elizabeth's name, there is, you know, in the rules of propaganda, if you will, um, uh, 
a standard practice of aligning a person's parents with traitorous or you know uh, bad character, traitorous deeds or bad character. So, and that book was published, or that pamphlet was published in the run up to the Spanish Armada when Mary Queen of Scots was a prisoner in um, England or under house arrest, either way you wanna look at that. Um, and another piece of propaganda that we're, might be more familiar with certainly Elizabethan, um, those interested in the Elizabethan era, uh, is Leicester's Commonwealth, which was again, a piece of Catholic propaganda with many errors in it, trying to besmirch Robert Dudley's character. So <clears throat> both of those comments, the great prostitute and the mayor, depending on your reading, it, but to me looks like it's besmirching Anne Boleyn, mm -hmm. not Mary Boleyn. Oh, okay. That's, that's really interesting. That kind of helps um, to dispel like one of those big rumors about Mary's earlier life, because I feel like so much that a lot of people think that they know about Mary later is based on that reading of her possible behavior uh, at the French, French court. court. And that's, yeah, that's really, really interesting. I know um, Sander was known to, to have some heavy mm -hmm. allegations uh, against Amboland, so I don't think it would be terribly Too surprising. Yeah, 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 I don't think that would be much of a stretch um, at all. So yeah, that's really interesting. Thank you for that. So there, yeah, I mean, the thing to, well, the thing that's helpful for me to remember is that these are not contemporaneous mm -hmm. behavior. So it isn't like somebody at the French court saw Mary Boleyn go into Francis's bedchamber and said, oh, she's the mayor, the English mayor, the great whore, whatever. That didn't happen. We don't have those records. So I'm going to go with, yeah, I'm not, I'm not convinced. Okay. Well, that's, um, that's good to know. I feel like that, that definitely <laughs> answers the first question. Um, and then that, that makes it so that we, I feel like we can move Mary out of France and into England now. So we know that she ended up marrying William Carey, who was one of Henry VIII's courtiers and favorites in February of 1520. So pretty mm -hmm. soon after we think that she would have returned from France. Mm -hmm. So what do we know about her marriage to William Carey? And is it true that the king himself might have arranged the marriage and actually attended the wedding. And when I say the king, I'm talking about now Henry VIII. Yeah. Right. So we don't know if Henry VIII attended the wedding. And we don't actually know if Henry VIII arranged the marriage. Um, it could just as easily have been Thomas Boleyn, Mary's dad, who arranged the marriage. It could have been her mother, Elizabeth Howard Boleyn, who arranged the marriage because Elizabeth Howard was also at court. Mm -hmm. Um, where we get this from is that in um, the financial records, it says that Henry VIII gave money to the couple at their wedding. The issues, well, at the marriage of. The thing is, the word at doesn't necessarily mean that he was physically present at it can also mean upon the occasion of. So that opens the door to, oh yes, 
you know, and I gave this money to the Belen Carey couple. They're so cute here. Have some money. Um, <laughs> and, you know, when you're looking at the record, um, this this the king's offering. It says the king's offering on Saturday, 4th February at the marriage of Mr. Carey and Mary Belen. It's in between dispensations of money for being a deputy at Calais, for repairing the castle at Leeds, for some spears at the Jows. Like it's sort of munched into a whole long list of mm -hmm. this is where the money went this week. And so there's no further text that would say, and he wore this, or mm -hmm. it was in the afternoon of. Um, so we're missing some of those details. Okay, that that makes sense. Um, it was just more like a like one item in a long list of expenses. It wasn't it wasn't anything special to say. And and look look at what the king did by gifting them this money when he attended their wedding. Instead, I think it's it's important to point out the different meanings of the word at. Like you said, that it could yeah. it could really just indicate upon the occasion of, and I think that's pretty typical of sources in the Tudor period. So that's that's an important distinction to make. So thank you for that. That's I, that's I think just as you know, for listeners, if they have Oxford um, access to the Oxford English Dictionary mm -hmm. online, the OED online, it's really useful to go and look at the way language was used at the time, because the way we use it is different. And yeah, it's really handy to recognize not only are there no spelling rules in the 16th century and that people spelled their own name multiple ways, but that all of those prepositions and adverbs and they could mean so many different things, you know, it's like there's in the same paragraph, there's money for anchors and other things to a messenger from a king, you know, for velvets and silks. It's just mm -hmm. thrown in there. Okay, well, that's that's good to know and a good tip uh, for people to check out if they do have access to the OED. Yeah. Okay, so now now we're going to move into the juicier stuff a little bit, Kristen. So your next question, what mm. do we know about Mary's relationship with Henry VIII? Do we know like when it might have started or ended? And do we actually have any proof of them having a sexual relationship? Well, we do have proof of them having a sexual relationship from the king's own mouth. Okay. So <laughs> that's a pretty trustworthy source. <laughs> I'm going to go with that's a trustworthy source. Um, during the annulment proceedings with Catherine of Aragon, King Henry VIII was asked if he had slept with Mary Boleyn and um, Mary Boleyn and Anne Boleyn's mother, Elizabeth Howard Boleyn. Mm -hmm. And his response was never with the mother. Typical Henry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all those other people, but not her. Yeah, that's, <laughs> so, that's interesting. <laughs> so um, that's, I, I take that as a very clear indication that yes, they had an affair. I think so too. I think that that implication is pretty cut and dry with that one. Pretty clear. Um so, uh, yeah. So what was the rest of that question? Sorry. So <laughs> when does the relationship hey, that, start? And that's okay. It's quite important. <laughs> um, 
historians uh, are typically vague on when this affair may have started and may have ended. I would like to put on the table for the listeners that Mary Boleyn was at the French court, that at the French court at that time, um, there was high art in being a discreet mistress. Mm -hmm. And if you look back at the mistresses in the French court and how long they forestalled relationships with the king and the rewards for being discreet, I would hypothesize that Mary learned that lesson. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the fact that we don't have a piece of paper or vellum or anything that says or parchment that says hi I slept with the king on this date you know we don't have her diary um doesn't mean that it didn't happen right mm-hmm. absence of evidence is an evidence of absence necessarily lots of things didn't make it to us from the 16th century sure. a long time. I think lots of stuff was burned and been molded and eaten by rats and mm-hmm. so we and just burned so much of it just so much of it was burned right. which is really really disappointing so um but Uh, I'm going to just jump ahead a little bit and say that because I firmly believe that Catherine Carey and Henry Carey are both the children of Henry VIII and Mary Boleyn, that the affair had to start at least nine months before Catherine Carey's birth. Mm -hmm. We know that Catherine Carey was born before Henry Carey. She's the elder sibling Mm -hmm. for a couple hundred years. We thought it was the reverse, but it's not. Um, And therefore, we're going to have to work backwards from Catherine Carey's birth Mm -hmm. and say, yes, it started then, which means that it would have overlapped a bit with her marriage with William Carey, that while she was married to William Carey, she was sleeping with King Henry VIII. And I'm good with that. I think that makes a lot of sense to me. I know a lot of listeners will not agree with that. And that's good. Um, Historical debates are wonderful. It's our version of a blood sport. So (laughs) you might as well enjoy it. Um, (laughs) There is some evidence at the time of rumors of Henry Carey's specifically of his relationship to Henry VIII, Mm -hmm. um, including John Hale, who was a vicar who stated to the Privy Council that he had been shown the nine-year-old Henry Carey, you know, wandering around the court someplace, um, identified as the king's son. So he told that to the Privy Council. And, um, right, and his quote is, moreover, Mr. Skidmore, who is also a relation of the Blinds and Howards, did show me young Master Carey saying that he was our sovereign lord, the king's son by our sovereign lady, the queen's sister, whom the queen's grace might not suffer to be in the court. Now, poor John Hale was executed two weeks later. So he may have just been throwing out everything, knowing that he was his fate had been sealed by something else. Yeah, that's that's interesting. I don't think I've actually come across that quote before, at least not uh, not that I can remember. So that, so you, I I know a lot of people think that it's possible that Catherine was his son, but that Henry was likely William Carey's, but you're Mm. falling pretty firmly with saying that both were the King's sons. And then do you, so do you think that, 
Henry, it was convenient for Catherine or for Mary Boleyn to have been married when she became pregnant with Catherine, because it would have been reasonably uh, or reasonable for the King to have denied paternity yes. if he needed to. Yes. Okay. And also typical of what happened in Francis the first court in France. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there is a series of gifts given to Mary Boleyn and William Carey that seem to mark the length and duration of what I believe is the king's relationship with Mary Boleyn, including the gift of a house where he met Mary Boleyn. Um, uh, so those those things are sort of fun to take a look at. The Another marker that's been used in this argument is Henry, the king, taking Mary Boleyn to see the ship Mary Boleyn. Yeah. And so either the king named the ship for her or um, I, someone else has posited that that was a ship owned by Thomas Boleyn, the dad that the king had just bought. Mm-hmm. But again, sort of odd that the king is taking Mary to show her the ship. Yeah, that, that is odd. her name. Well, and know? do we, do you have um, like a rough time period for when that happened? Do you happen to know? Uh, and it's okay I, if not, I know I'm putting you on the spot with dates right now. <laughs> I do, I remember reading about that um, myself and I think it was, maybe right around like 1522, 1523, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, that's going to be about right. Okay. Um, I was just looking for my notes on that, but I'm not, they're not popping up at the moment. Oh, that's okay. That it is right around uh, the time of the Chateau Vert pageant, which we know that Mary played a major role or one of the major roles uh, in that pageant too. So it's, it's interesting that she seems like she was really, really active in the King's sights at that mm-hmm. time and possibly even already having been, you know, in a relationship with Henry for maybe even a year or two at that time. I believe so. Mm-hmm. And I believe while popular culture is using the Chateau Vert pageant as a mm-hmm. way that Anne and Henry's, you know, spark up. Thank you, Natalie Dormer. Um, <laughs> uh, there it's Mary whose constancy and faithfulness and mm-hmm. sort of carries through that. And I think, you know, there's a painting um, that's recently been re-identified as Mary Boleyn uh, that was part of a collection of paintings called The Nine Beauties. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that that's just like the tip of the iceberg of our revisioning of who Mary Boleyn was. I just think she was more discreet than her sister Anne. I think that Henry was really attracted to Anne's um, verve and um, quick wit, mm-hmm. but that, and that Anne also learned lessons while at the court of France about how to forestall somebody's ardor for seven years, which I mm-hmm. find incredibly impressive. Uh, <laughs> Especially when it's the king. Yeah, <laughs> not the not the easiest person uh, not to, the easiest, to deny, yeah, I would say to put off. Um, yeah. So I think that you know, that that 1530s, you know, those early bits around just before Chateau Vert, uh, there's also a joust where um, the king is 
wearing a favor of Mary Boleyn's uh, that's right around the Chateau Vert time. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those things sort of lead up to um, this idea that they had an ongoing relationship. And, you know, later on in the Carrie life cycle or mm-hmm. kinship network, as I refer to it, during the Elizabethan reign, um, the carriers were referred to as the tribe of Dan. Mm-hmm. And that's a biblical reference to a tribe that was born between a king and his mistress, Bilal, oh. who was handmade to his wife, the way Mary Boleyn was um, servant of his wife, Catherine of Aragon. And that they were incredibly fecund, which the Carries were mm-hmm. um, having more than a dozen children live to maturity is quite a feat. <laughs> yeah, on both sides, both Catherine and Henry Carey. Um, so the tribe of Dan reference to them um, really, when you dig into that biblical um, metaphor, if you will, fits the Carey kinship network. Mm-hmm. The fact that King Henry VIII had sort of special consideration for Catherine Carey, Mary Boleyn's daughter, uh, when she married to Francis Knowles, including pushing through two acts of parliament to guarantee um, ownership of uh, Rutherfield Grays, which was mm-hmm. the manor um, outside Reading in Oxfordshire. Um, the first act of parliament somehow wasn't sufficient. So he pushed through another one a year later. That's not really what a king would do for somebody he doesn't have some care or responsibility for. And all of those land grants and those acts of parliament, those two acts of parliaments are about Catherine Carey and her husband. It isn't to her husband. It's not a favor for Sir Francis Knowles. Mm -hmm. It's a favor for Catherine Carey Knowles. Which is interesting because of the the long lasting um, like erasure of Anne Boleyn in the hands of Henry. You know that he tried to destroy everything that had anything to do with her, but that he would have still cared that much for someone who was mm-hmm. just her niece. You know it 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 seems like that doesn't jive with what we know about Henry's treatment of Anne's memory that he would go out of his way for a someone who's a female relative of her unless you know there would be a different type of interest yeah some type of connection there and then and correct me if I'm wrong but Catherine and Elizabeth were really close throughout Elizabeth's reign yeah that's that's what I thought so incredibly close although Catherine Carey Knowles uh dies in 1569 Mm -hmm. um her daughter, uh, no, Henry Carey's daughter, Catherine Carey Howard, who ends mm-hmm. up marrying in, you know, it's a big cousin network, um, is with Elizabeth all the way through her life. And her death is thought to have been a factor in bringing on Elizabeth the first final illness because yeah. they died just very, uh, Elizabeth died very shortly after Catherine Carey Howard. Um, but yeah, there's tales of, dis- of of Queen Elizabeth disguising herself as Catherine Carey to go watch Robert Dudley ride. Mm-hmm. And, um, and there's 
stuff in the uh, records about, well, if you can get Catherine Carey to deal, or Catherine Carey Knowles to deal with this, it's a done deal. Mm-hmm. Like this woman can make this happen. Um, that that's how close the relationship was. Yeah. That she was sort of uh, like an endpoint for a lot of people to have access to the queen, which might speak to how they they might have been more closely related than how we they viewed each other. Yeah, and, and certainly, I mean, there is a, you know one of the secretaries Beale wrote, "Be careful of the women around the queen because if you don't have their favor, you can't get the queen to do a thing." And there's plenty of letters from Carrie Knowles women to various courts saying, hi, I want you to rule this way on this particular judgment. Don't forget Mm -hmm. I'm not signing, you know, at the court, just in case anybody (laughs) in doubt about their relationship. Or even there's a letter saying, um, from I think from Philadelphia, Carrie saying, uh, I'm going to keep this from coming before the Privy Council because I think it's a bad case. Mm-hmm. So if they're manipulating the Privy Council agenda. Yeah, they have that much power. They have that much power. So between being called the tribe of Dan, between mm-hmm. um, the incredibly close relationship, um, Henry VIII plucking Catherine Carey out of sort of nowhere to be a maid to Anne of Cleves, which, mm-hmm. you know, there were plenty of women who would have wanted that post. He didn't have yeah. to pick the niece of a disgraced queen that he yeah. had executed. So all of these things combined with some land grants and some, um, you know, as... <laughs> favors that yeah. the king gave to William Carey really make me think that both those children were the kings and throughout throughout the relationships the all the land grants and um, orders include the women on the titles for all sorts of things so which is unusual most of them don't most of them are to the man you know yeah, that's really interesting. I feel like that's um, that family is just like the perfect case study of women's agency at the time, which I know you know, since that's, you know, that's your family. It's my family. <laughs> you're, you're more than aware of that. Uh, so I do have, I have one last question for you. So, okay. so I appreciate you sharing your take on mm-hmm. the, what, what you think is the likely paternity um, of Mary Boleyn's two children. Was, is this something that was discussed at the time? Do we have any any type of record or discussion of uh, this type of rumor circulating around Henry VIII's court or Elizabeth I's court? Or is it something that was very much just kind of swept under the rug and not talked about? Or maybe something uh, that was just such common knowledge that it didn't need to be recorded? I'm... I, um... I don't believe it was necessarily swept under the rug until mm-hmm. the point when Henry and Anne decided they would marry. Okay. At that point, the record of his paternity of those kids needed to be re- you know, reassigned to William mm-hmm. Carey because okay. conveniently, you know, the husband, which legally he was the father. So, um, but the, 
but the kids, you know, there's some evidence that Catherine Carey and Henry Carey were in the Royal Nursery household in Hun- at Hunsdon that um, John Hale said, I was shown this guy, this nine-year-old boy who I was told is the King's son, indicates to me that there was common knowledge amongst the elites and but also a wariness about voicing anything. Mm-hmm. Um, remember, John Hale was executed two weeks later. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't want to be in the position. I mean, if I were at the court, I wouldn't want to be in the position of saying, oh, yeah, you know, they're the king's kids because mm-hmm. of knowing that the basis for the annulment with Catherine of Aragon was consanguinity with his brother right, that Catherine had been married to his brother. So if Henry wants to marry Anne, he can't have had kids with her sister because that is just the utmost in hypocrisy that would not even wash in a court that he had orchestrated. So I would say that wise people kept their mouths shut. I think that makes sense, uh, especially when it comes to someone like Henry VIII who had shown time and again, that he wasn't too hesitant to inflict those really strict punishments yes. uh, on on people who might challenge him. He can leap right to the final <laughs> verdict. He can. Just, he, can. Okay, that's done. <laughs> he can. And, and, you know, it was whatever was the king's will is what tended to happen. Uh, mm-hmm. And you didn't have very much luck trying to challenge that when he was the monarch. I think it's also important that, that people remember that Elizabeth I wasn't embarrassed of her mother. Mm-hmm. She was depicted, Anne Boleyn was depicted in the coronation procession on the way into London. This, the family line was acknowledged and, you know, even later on Henry Carey, uh, you know, actually George Carey is going after property for the earldom of Ormond um, because of that lineage. So Mm -hmm. I just think keeping an open mind is an important piece of the puzzle. Yeah, I think that's great. And that's a, that's a good, a good place to end. Thank you so much for, for answering these questions. I feel like you've, you've given us a lot to think about, but you've also, sort of resolved a lot of those pesky rumors that that have always surrounded Mary and that I think really unfairly impacts the popular memory of Mary or the popular image that we have now Mm -hmm. of Mary and hopefully you know as as more people uh, are outspoken and as more of this research continues to be done we can try and shift that image that we have of her, you know, the stereotypical English mare image, and instead really try and see Mary more for someone who knew what she was doing. And like you said, was very discreet and, and knew how to use relationships to her advantage, not someone who, who was just taken advantage of uh, by multiple Kings, which I feel like is the unfair depiction that we often get. I agree. I do not think she was a victim. I think, you know, discretion is the wiser part of valor sometimes. And there's a tendency in popular culture to pit siblings against each other. And so you need to draw stark contrasts between 
the siblings in order to have a great tale and mm -hmm. I love those tales but looking at the archives was a different story yeah well thank you so much I really appreciate it thank you for taking the time to chat with us no worries bye bye thanks for listening to this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast you can follow and support the Tudor's Dynasty podcast on Facebook Twitter Instagram and Patreon at Tudor's Dynasty